Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. What is up, my first-gen brethren? I hope you've been hitting the fields hard and taking full advantage of the most wonderful season. Hunting season, that is. I know I sure have been. Today we are joined by a man who has dedicated his life to supporting wildlife, Mr. Todd Bogenschutz of the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Todd serves as the state upland wildlife biologist and is a true expert on upland game species in North America. This interview is a masterclass in the history and ecology of pheasants, quail, and other small game species, not just in Iowa, but all across the heartland. I strongly believe that if you want to take the next step with your skill as a hunter, you gotta learn about the game you are pursuing. Todd takes us through topics such as where these species are native to, how their populations have held up in the past compared to now, and how to maximize our own hunting properties for holding more game. There's a ton of information in this one, so be sure to take notes as you return to school for your education on North American upland species here on episode 19 of the First Gen Hunter podcast, an interview with wildlife biologist, Mr. Todd Bogenschutz. Hey, Brandon, guess what? What's that, sir? I am still in my hunting clothes. I even have my hunting boots on. That's how dedicated <laughs> First Gen Hunter is into uh, being relevant by getting out into the field, man. Uh, hey, I mean, hey, you go out hunting and then you jump on the podcast to talk about hunting. I mean, hey, how much better can it get? <laughs> That's right. Got to have that first person experience. Even though I didn't, <laughs> even though I haven't shot anything the fa- the past few times I've gone out, it's still just nice to <laughs> still just nice to get out there. But hey, that's yeah. You know that's that's uh, public land hunting here in a yep. rather populous area. There's a lot of there's a lot of competition even on the off nights. So, sure, yeah. How about you? Have you? Uh, I mean, I know we've last time we recorded, we talked about how you got out doing a little uh, deer hunting already out there in Delaware. But mm-hmm. have yep, any yep. any updates otherwise? Well, I mean, we've been able to go out, you know, a couple times. I, I myself have been out once, uh, and you know, we've been trying to. You know, we hunt, you know, we hunt for private pieces, um, here in Delaware, we're blessed with that, but we also have a lot of public land to hunt as well. And we try to, we try to basically hunt the public land in an effort to, especially early season, keep the pressure low um, sure. on our properties. And, and we're, you know, of course, trying to hunt smart with the wind and all that type of good stuff. So, um, one of the, one of the other guys, uh, from Hunt Fish Life and, and in our local club, um, uh, actually was hunting a, a really good state piece, um, about a week ago and had, uh, they had my brother and, and he and my brother had actually uh, been doing some scouting on that piece of bean field out there. And they saw two shooters, um, and so they ended up going out hunting and, and were hunting the field and just inside the field edge one night. And he actually had both of them walk by him 
at 25 yards and Whoa. unfortunately they they just would not stop um but i mean it was cool to kind of see the 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 whole thing come together um uh, and you know have you know him have a pretty close opportunity at that so hopefully hopefully we'll have some more opportunity here coming up soon so i mean it's already been already been a pretty good start to things so hopefully here's knocking on wood that it continues <laughs> yeah for sure <laughs> yeah man i'm i'm just getting so antsy to get out there in the deer yeah. woods and and uh you know something very relevant to our guest tonight tonight yeah. while we went out dove hunting um mm-hmm. i get myself into these pickles all the time usually it happens when i'm shed hunting you know i like yeah. yeah i can walk through that you know and it's like way thicker and way <laughs> Yeah, way, yeah. way tougher tracking than normal and i did that tonight i wanted i got greedy i thought i found a good spot to try and get on some doves and then i quickly mm-hmm. realized if yeah it probably was a good spot to see doves but if we shot them without a dog we were never going to find them and i left my dogs oh, at home right yeah yeah and i had jonas with me so i'm like carrying jonas you know i'm getting the old uh 12 gauge arm cramp and everything and yeah but you know, you're still having fun because you're hunting. And sure. then yeah. I just had that beautiful sound that I love to hear when I'm walking through tall grass. And that mm. was the, a flushing pheasant. Not one, but two hens nice. uh, just blasted out right in, in front of us. And, you know, of course, my son Jonas thought that was awesome. And the reason yeah. I say this is relevant is because the guy behind the great pheasant hunting that we've been enjoying here in iowa over the past several years yeah mr todd bogenschutz from the iowa dnr the same mm. biologist who i uh, was geeking out about reporting my uh, jackrabbit sighting to he is mm-hmm. on the call with us tonight todd how are you sir i'm very good thank you yeah yeah you know i i when I saw those pheasants flushed, I was like, you know, I got to make sure I thank Todd for that because uh, you guys, you guys put in a lot of work to to maximizing what we have here in Iowa as far as these uh, good untilled acres of public ground and get, mm. keeping some birds on them. So, thank you yeah. for all your hard work. Well, you know, you guys pay our salaries, so we try to <laughs> do what we can do to the best of our ability, you know, got the science and data and just try to make it work. Sometimes it doesn't, but uh, mm-hmm. if you put the right things together, usually they respond. Yep. Yeah. That's a that's a good way of saying it. I am also a public servant. I am a, I'm a high school science teacher, so I often feel the same way. <laughs> well, it's your money. <laughs> You're right. Anyways, well, as as a uh, biologist, you know, obviously, like you were just talking about, putting the putting the data together, putting the science together, um, a lot of research goes into your work. And you know, it, after I met you through email, and um, you know, obviously, you have a you have a memorable name, um, and I see your name all the time now <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> hey i know that guy and uh of course the most recent publication i saw your name on it was the 2020 uh roadside uh surveys that just came out a, what about a week and a half ago uh, pretty pretty well brand new yeah hot off the press but um even well beyond that you know the, i was listening to a podcast the other day um 
they're associated with a magazine here in Iowa, a magazine that actually I, I, I uh, write for on occasion, and um, they were interviewing a guy who had basically done some research explaining the history of pheasants in Iowa. And uh, he mentioned how he uh, had uh, tapped your shoulder to get some of his uh, his information. It's like, there's Todd's name again. You know, I, I, <laughs> so... You are a you are a quite a well respected and and uh, well circulated uh, scientist and uh, certainly uh, I know Brandon and I feel very privileged to have you on the show tonight. So yeah. so um, I I think it's good that and important that our listeners understand that that you have uh, uh, your hands in a lot of what goes on here in the state of Iowa. But I'm going to imagine that you get phone calls from other uh, other state agencies from other states when they're dealing with some of the, the same work that you do. And, um, you know, so we, we really, we really appreciate you coming on. So um, I know from talking with you that it's not all just uh, down to business though. You do like to hunt. Am I, am I right? Oh yeah. That's uh that's what, uh, that's what got me into the profession. It's not that I wanted to <laughs> grow up as a kid, wanted to work for a state government, but you know, it's, <laughs> when your passion is kind of outdoors and and critters, you know, there's kind of limited op- opportunities. You know, you can mm-hmm. sure. you can be a biologist, you can you can be a teacher, you can uh, I guess be a hunting guide, and mm-hmm. you know, if you want to be employed by you know, and I just love loved upland bird hunting and loved it enough that I'm like, what kind of job can I get where I can do this every day? And so, that <laughs> yeah. Is- yeah, definitely. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, when Todd and I were kind of emailing back and forth, which I, I have an update on something that you and I talked about probably a month and a half ago, um, that I, that maybe you, you saw it as well. I meant to pass it on to you, but, um, when we got hit by that terrible storm here in the state of Iowa about uh, probably about a month ago now, I guess um, Todd's area got really slammed. And uh, I think I remember your town was, did you say you were without power for about a week or something like that in your town? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, man. It, wow. It was really bad. And in that Todd mentioned, he's like, I'm working really hard to keep my venison frozen, <laughs> and yeah, and really. uh, uh, that that is that is a true sportsman's nightmare. And I was I had just a little taste of it, but I was able to get a generator pretty quick for my brother, and uh, mm-hmm. and our we didn't get hit near as hard as Todd's area did, and um, our power for everyone around us. I think the the longest you know, like a significant amount of people went without power around here. It was like maybe four or five days, but yeah, mm-hmm. Todd, Todd's time, town so. got pretty much leveled. And, um, yeah. And, but that is, as one of your first concerns, you know, when you, you have all this game, you want to, you want to make use of it. And, um, when we lose that electricity, then, uh, we, we wish we had a, like a resident pioneer to tap on the shoulder and, and yeah, ask no about kidding. some of those primitive uh, meat care tips, but but uh, hopefully yeah. you're able to to salvage all of it. And um, 
I remember when I got that email, I was done using my generator, but you live far enough away where I could not drop it off for you, and I had wished that I could because I could uh, I could uh, relate to your pain there. But but um, mm. hopefully uh, all shuck out okay with that. But you know, oh, kind of- yeah, the uh, the in laws and the parents broke both brought their generators down, so put one on each freezer and uh, oh perfect, didn't lose any of it, so that was great. Yeah, that that is good news. Awesome. I'm glad to glad to hear that there was a happy ending there. Um, yeah. Along the lines of you being an outdoorsman, uh, Brandon and I have a friend named Jeremiah Haas. He's a he's a uh, fisheries. Well, his his real term is environmental. His job title is environmental chemist, but he he's definitely does a lot of work in fisheries. He works for. Um, a uh, power plant here in the Quad City area on the Illinois side of the river. And he, uh, uh, all the pools in this portion of the, the Mississippi River, he stocks walleyes. And um, uh, just a really interesting guy. He's, he's, uh, he does, he's got his hands in all sorts of different things. Um, but he uh, said this when we uh, interviewed him back on episode 14. He said that a lot of the best fishermen he knows are wildlife biologists, and a lot of the best hunters he knows are fisheries biologists Mm -hmm. (laughs) because Mm -hmm. people don't like to take their work home with them. They don't want to mix work and play. Have have you found that to be true in your line of work, Todd? Um, Yeah, I guess I wouldn't say it's that cut and dry, but yeah, I know... uh... Our fisheries biologist in the office. He's a he's a really avid bow hunter. Really likes mm. chasing deer, and uh, sure, you know he'll get out and uh, and uh, chase a pheasant now and then. But deer are really his thing. He went out this fall and shot an antelope in Wyoming with his bow. Oh, just cool. a big bow hunter, and uh, does a lot of management nice. for deer. But yeah, I don't. You know, I guess he doesn't really fish. I mean, they do fish, but obviously. So yeah, I mean, I I think being outdoors, but uh, I mean, I like to do them both. I, I you know I do fish in the summertime, but uh, once hunting season starts, <laughs> yep. fishing mm. takes a backseat. Yep, yeah, yep. That's that's for sure. Yeah, we had another guy on a, on a past episode who um who said uh, fishing is the gateway drug to hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and uh brandon and i i think definitely agree with that so there's yeah yeah we love to fish but yeah you can't replicate that that uh enjoyment that comes from being in the being in the woods so yes. you know one last thing i, I want to ask you about with your job as a uh, biologist a wildlife biologist i am a uh high school biology teacher and so on occasion i get a student who um, really is looking into uh, working as a fisheries biologist or at least interested in it or a wildlife biologist. And uh, they they think they would enjoy doing that as a career. I know that it is pretty competitive to get into that field. Do you have any advice that I should pass on to these students? Or if there's anyone listening in who's kind of thinking that way, what would you say to uh to them if they were what what bit of advice would you give them if they are pursuing that for a career i would say like you said it's very competitive so 
Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's really your passion, just be persistent with it. Um, you know, folks get in jobs like I have and <clears throat> they get in it cause they have a passion for it. Sure. Um, yeah. So once they get in, they generally don't leave till they retire. So not right. a lot of turnover. So, yeah, you know, and I would say the book part of it's fine. You've got to have that, uh, that baseline, that knowledge, the science. Yep. But mm-hmm. you know, I would I always encourage, you know, like our summer kids and stuff that uh, you know, volunteer if you have to. I mean, you know, helping out like the local county conservation board or yeah. you know, if we're doing something, banding geese. Um, you know, obviously if you can get a summer job, that's great. But just be willing to get some of that field experience, you know, that goes yep. along with the education really well. And uh, don't be afraid to move. You know, we we had some kids from Ellsworth Community College come over and we sat down and, you know, a bunch of us in the office or other biologists and stuff just to give them backgrounds. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in upstate New York on the Canadian border. Oh, wow. Uh, went to, did my first undergrad wildlife stuff in southern New York. Uh, came out to South Dakota and got my master's. Went up to northern Minnesota with my first temporary job. Got my first full-time job with the Indiana DNR and then mm. came came to Iowa to, you know, this job. And so, you know, we had some of our other staff that went, uh, he was from Iowa, went down to Texas and then he had jobs in Canada, Alaska, California, Idaho. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And he finally got hired on full time with us, got, got able to get back here, but, um, you gotta be persistent because I mean, they're, they're actually, cool and fun jobs and um just not a lot of turnover so the more experience you have the better and, and you know just yeah. those contacts you make as you're as you're you know kind of doing those things are a big plus too sure sure now is there is there a job within the dnr that is that that there aren't so many applicants for like um like maybe a a technician level job or I don't know, maybe uh, I met with a uh, state forester um, recently to, to look at some uh, property uh, that I hunt. And, uh, you know, I guess I'd never really even thought of that as being a job. So I maybe not as many people know about that, that type of a job. Is there anything like that, that, that maybe you'd advise these people to look into um, to maybe get, their foot in the door or something um boy with our with our positions within the dnr even even the you know we have kind of our structure is we have biologists and then we have technician twos and then technician ones and then summer help we hire and so i know we probably had summer kids that we've hired maybe five six seven years in a row okay um and then finally they got to interview for a technician one job and, and got hired full time. So there isn't really any positions within fish and wildlife. Um, sure. And I would say forestry is probably pretty competitive too. No, I would say if folks are, you know, if they can't, can't get on there and, and, uh, or get into one of our summer jobs, then 
Yeah, go look at the County Conservation Boards, Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited. A lot of them sure. folks hire some summer help. National Wildlife Federation, mm-hmm. National Turkey yep. Federation. You know, just take any opportunity you can like that. Even your city park is, mm. you know, kind of in the door. Right, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great information. That's that's really helpful. Yeah, I'll uh, definitely pass it on to students now when they when they ask about that because it, it helps clear up a lot of a lot of stuff that you wouldn't know unless you asked. Talk to the right person, and obviously you're yeah. the, you're the yeah. guy to talk to on that. So, man, no, well, I've been there, done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. All the way up from northern uh, New York, uh, I drive through that region at least once a year. Uh, my in-laws live in New Hampshire, so. We end up there kind of in that Finger Lakes region where we're traveling through. I guess that's not real far north though into into New York, but but um yeah, we head up we head up that way and then cross over into Vermont eventually and go what is that, Route Nine or Route Seven, something like that that runs through Vermont. All beautiful country though up there. It's really Yep, up. it's gorgeous. The Adirondacks, uh, what yes. do they call it? A six and a half million acre playground. So Yeah. yeah. I want to say is maybe three summers ago, we went up to uh, Lake Champlain for a week, and we drove through that Adirondacks region. I'd never, I'd never done that portion of the drive before, and I definitely got this feeling of like I am in an ancient place as far as our country is concerned, and it is quite remote and. It was almost kind of a like an eerie feeling, you know, that you're just totally in the middle of this, you know, just thousands of acres of forest, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it was it was a cool feeling, you know, it made it made me feel small <laughs> driving through right. there, and I could definitely see how that could be an outdoor an outdoorsman's playground up there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Well, um, on the other uh, end of the call here you've kind of been talking heard me talking with him and and uh, he's he's uh, mentioned mentioned a few things so far is brandon martin he's a friend of mine from the college days and he uh runs his own channel hunt fish life out of delaware all the way on the uh, eastern seaboard there and uh yes uh, he's generous enough to uh rub in all the saltwater fishing that he does and his uh september <laughs> one deer opener but but no he's a he's a great guy and um he's got a great a great uh resource over there at hunt fish life and um brandon do you have any uh anything big going on there real quick from hunt fish life that our listeners need to hear about well, I mean, we just we actually just finished up a giveaway. You know, we had some uh, Hunt Fish Life gear. I believe, actually, believe it or not, tonight that we did the giveaway on, we had it out for awesome. a week, and uh, it was great. You know, great time. I had a good amount of participation, which we enjoyed and some guys you know kind of just kind of kicking off so let's celebrate you know and and that's kind of the theme at hunt fish life is you know celebrating the uh the brotherhood sister sisterhood of the great outdoors and enjoying that and so we we had that and enjoyed uh, a lot of pictures being posted uh from different guys and girls you know so that was enjoyable to just see some harvest you know kind of going into early season and you know as you mentioned, kind of, we've already started out here, um, with deer hunting, which we're, we're blessed with. So we've had, so had a couple close encounters so far. So enjoying that. So 
going very well. So, I mean, we're just excited and uh, in the process of mentoring um, a couple guys this year uh, to, you know, getting them into hunting for the first time. And so uh, enjoying that already and going to have one of them over here shortly to uh, practice the bow a little bit, kind of get them into that side of things. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's been, it's been enjoyable enjoying that side of things and, you know, just excited to see other people join in and, and share those great memories. So, yeah, a lot of, a lot of fun, exciting stuff going on. For sure. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really good yeah. news. Well, <clears throat> Todd, we didn't we didn't bring you on just to shoot the breeze with you. <laughs> although that <laughs> although I've enjoyed doing that so far. Um let's kind of get down to business here and uh dig into your area of expertise, which is researching and uh I can't remember where I, s- I, I think I saw you maybe I, I read it another interview you had done or something and you used the term supporting, I believe it was, or supporting, uh, the biologists in the field, the other, the other people working with the wildlife. And I just thought that was a good word. You know, you use your expertise to help guide the research and, and make sense of the numbers that are coming in and, um, you know, help, help, uh, make Iowa as good of a upland state as, as you can can you kind of uh within that paint this overall picture of maybe in the short term considerations so we'll say within the last 10 years so the last decade of how upland game species are doing in Iowa and um and this might be more of your uh your opinion or or you know you could go straight fact here too i'm sure uh, how you feel they're doing overall in the midwest and then maybe even let's set the clock back further and say how are we doing in the big picture since iowa kind of became conserva- conservation minded to some extent how are we doing with with our upland species here Sure, sure. So I'd say over the last decade, you know, we've kind of been on an upward trend with our upland game since about 2012. Um, 2007 to 2011 was kind of a tough weather a series of about five years where we had pretty bad consecutive winters five years in a row and pretty bad nesting seasons five years in a row, which is kind of unprecedented for Iowa. Um, Mm -hmm. And then kind of had the drought in 2012 and we've kind of turned the corner. Things have kind of been back to normal. And so, you know, that took us pretty low and now we've kind of just been on a steady rise, which is, is good to see, you know, I'd like to see us go higher. Um, not sure that we have the habitat to go a lot higher. Um, yeah. You know, we've been losing habitat over the last 10 years as well. So yeah. uh, Mother Nature turned around for us. The habitat thing is just kind of slowly eroding, it seems, through time. So, um, but, you know, don't want to don't want to paint it as all negative because, like I said, um, counts were pretty good this year and, uh you know, we could be looking at our best pheasant harvest in a decade and might wow. be even a little longer. Depends. Wow. That's, That's awesome. awesome. That's, that is great news. You know, I, I, uh, back in, let's see here, would have been the 2018, 2019, 
uh, pheasant season, I saw more birds. And, you know, some backstory on me. I didn't grow up hunting. Um, uh, I had access to good hunting ground through my grandfather's farm, but my dad didn't hunt. My grandpa, he hunted, you know, maybe a handful of times uh, at that point. And uh, so I just didn't get into it till I was an adult. I actually ended up buying a, a bird dog and and um, training him a little bit. And just <laughs> we kind of learned it together, I guess you could say. But, yeah. but um, that 2018-2019 year, I could tell, even with my minimal experience at the time, well, I think that was my third year of hunting maybe, or fourth year, and uh there were it just seemed like pheasants everywhere and if i remember correctly it was the winter before was was kind of like this last one where it's just quite mild and very little snow um and you know i could just see the payoff with there there i saw so many pheasants you know i i even got into some of those you know kind of south dakota-esque flushes where you got so many birds you don't know which one to put point your barrel at and mm-hmm. um then that really harsh winter hit um so that must have been early in the season because then rolling into 2019 we had those those uh <laughs> wicked cold like record setting cold snaps and just a ton of snow and last year I don't even think I shot a pheasant, you know, and, and, uh, I saw very, very few, but I, part of that too was the farm I was hunting got mowed pretty late. And so there just wasn't very good hunting habitat. Whereas the year before that didn't happen. So that was part of it too. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I sensed that because the numbers were so good in the year before that bad winter, that there would be a pretty good rebound if we had, a mild winter, which we ended up having this last year. Now, does it work like that or, or not so much the case? No, it, it, uh, actually works like that, Kent. I mean, you know, we've been, we've actually been doing surveys in the state for upland games since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the science was pretty new back then. And so a lot of changes happened, but, um, through those years, but about 1960, we kind of standardized how we surveyed the birds and we've sure. been doing it more or less the same ever since. So, uh, that's over half century of data and yeah. we can look at uh, that data and compare it to like NOAA weather data, which goes back to the 1900s, even into the late 1800s. And, uh, mm-hmm. that's exactly what we see. If, matter of fact, I can even give you a kind of a cutoff value of, if the statewide average is 30 inches of snowfall or more, probably 80, 90% of the time, our counts are going to go down. And mm. if I look at uh, huh. rainfall during April and May, if we surpass eight inches, um, the counts are probably going to go down. Um, but, you know, for less than that, you know, the counts tend to stay stable or go up depends on how much less and same thing with the winter you know as far as winter time if we have 20 inches of snow or less or we have a spring with six inches of rain or less i can tell you that the counts are almost likely certainly going to go up okay so 
Yeah, I mean, weather does, you know, especially the annual changes, you know, the, the weather stuff, you know, that really demonstrates itself from year to year. Um, the habitat changes tend to be more over a decade or more, just, sure. you know, because habitat doesn't change as quickly. And, you know, just think about, like you mentioned, your your field, you know, that was mowed. Yeah. Well, it's not like all them pheasants just instantly died when it right, was mowed. Right. They just right. they went somewhere, they went somewhere else. else. Yeah. Maybe it was good habitat and they did fine. Maybe it wasn't so good and they had a little more mortality than normal, maybe, than if they'd been there. And so yeah, habitat tends to be fairly gradual when we look at uh, indices, but uh, the weather definitely one year to the next. And so yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, I'm guessing the problem there is is two different problems. In the winter time, the heavy snow probably leads to a lot of birds dying from exposure or from not being able to scratch out some food underneath all that snow. And then is it in the spring based on kind of that time frame you mentioned with the heavy rains? Is that because nesting is going on and, and because a lot, a lot of our pheasant habitat is kind of relegated to banks of creeks and streams? Those creeks get out of their, their banks and then they wash away those nests? Or am I uh, assuming too much there? <laughs> no, no, I mean, that's, that's yeah, I think you summarized it pretty well. The wintertime... Uh, we don't tend to see a lot of starvation. Not going to say it doesn't happen. The birds usually are able to find a windswept hill somewhere, sure. but it's mm-hmm. like you said, it's it's exposure. I mean, we get birds that freeze to death, um, you know, or get buried, and then you know, habitats get filled in with snow, and the birds are forced to concentrate, and that allows the predators out there to be more mm-hmm. efficient. It's always better for the birds to stay, stay dispersed on the sure. the landscape. Um, so, yeah, it's that exposure. In the springtime, um, yeah, so it's, you know, if the, the eggs get wet and chilled, of course, they won't hatch. Um, we kind of think, you know, especially in the wet, cold springs, uh, maybe the hens aren't quite as attentive. You know, they're burning calories and maybe feeding a little more. And then, uh, of course, right when they hatch, um, pheasant and quail chicks can't thermoregulate Hungarians to turkeys for that matter. Those young chicks can't therm- thermoregulate their body temperature sure. for about the first 10 days. And so okay. very dependent on the hens to stay warm. And so when you have those right. springs that are wet and cold and the chicks are walking through that vegetation, and, you know, I think our survival really drops off. And the other thing we've linked to it is, um, we have those kinds of springs and stuff. We're not sure that our insect hatches are that good either. And so that impacts the chicks because most of their diet, the first couple of weeks of life is insects. So, Sure. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that, ma- that all makes sense. That's what I love about ecology. You know, it, if you really dig into it enough, you can kind of start link connecting all the dots, I guess you could say. And, yeah, that all that all makes makes a lot of sense. Um, we've mentioned. So yeah, if we want good uh, good pheasant numbers, we want a mild winter and a warm dry spring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> that's yes, that's that's uh, 
duly noted. Um, but another factor that you kind of mentioned in there, and, and you did mention that it's it's a gradual change, not not near as drastic as as what harsh weather can be, and that is habitat. And what you know, going back to the the story of you know how we first got in contact with each other was me reporting that jackrabbit I saw, and at one time it. It wouldn't. We wouldn't need things like, "Hey, if you see a jackrabbit, please let us know," uh, because jackrabbits were doing fine in Iowa, and that's probably been a long time ago now, uh, since that was the case, and that I think probably means that jackrabbits are kind of could we call it like an indicator species of how the landscape has been significantly altered from its original uh its original state is is that fair to say oh yeah absolutely um you know the records i've read that you know when settlers first got here there were jackrabbits were mainly in northwest north central iowa and mm-hmm. uh because that's where bison are most common and so i guess think about it might have looked like those shows you've seen in Africa with the wildebeest and, you know, how the herds yeah, moved. Sure. And so some areas were grazed very short and some were maybe not grazed as much, but it was a very patchwork thing. Of course, you had some natural fire in there, some Indian fire, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The jackrabbits really like that short stuff. Um, and actually jackrabbits at settlement, as we began to settle and develop Iowa, the Homestead Act and everything, um, they actually expanded all the way over to Illinois, all the way to over where you were, down into central Iowa, even into southern Iowa. And that was because our kind of crop rotation was a corn oat hay. So corn oat hay was very important because everybody had livestock, so there was pasture mm-hmm. hay. Yep. Um, you know, and the oats were always a good uh, livestock forage. Of course, horses were mainly how we farmed. And and so you had probably half the state was in that corn, oat, hay pasture rotation. And the other 50% was corn. Um, yeah. and they were all small fields and they were all intermixed. And uh, it just made actually a fantastic landscape for things like pheasants, quail, cottontails, jackrabbits, um, just tremendous. You know, you had high energy foods like corn and, and oats. And right next to that was grassy cover in the form of hay and pasture. Uh, you know, things weren't, we didn't, of course it was horse driven. If you, Mm -hmm. you know, late 1800s into the 1930s. So you're only talking one cutting of hay. It was later. It was just, you know, more beneficial to wildlife. They could bring nests off. And of course, as we come through time, we got more mechanized, started using chemicals, and things got more efficient. And, uh, you know, now we cut hay three or four times a year, or it used to only be mm-hmm. cut once. And, uh, and we kind of see soybeans come in and replace the oat hay rotation. Yeah. So now it's just... Uh, corn and soybeans and so we lost all that grassy cover that the small grains and hay provided and so as we've lost the habitat we've kind of seen our populations uh, do similar i mean they need a place to live just like we do and 
Yeah, it's interesting when you put the historical context together and then see the uh, <laughs> ecological effect from from all those different components. That's that's really interesting, but kind of almost depressing too, you know, because yeah, right. There, there's not many of them around anymore, and certainly, you know, some of the other species you mentioned, like buffalo, they're totally gone from Iowa, other than ones that we, you know, put on specific preserves and so forth. But, but uh, yeah, a lot, a lot has changed. In fact, um, one last thing I want to bring up on this is at the beginning of this year's roadside survey report, I read this little blurb, and I had heard something along these lines before but it wasn't it wasn't quite as clear as how it was stated in in the the survey report i believe it stated something along the lines of the amount of habitat that has been that has been lost for wildlife for for upland species covered in that survey is and i can't remember the time frame on it was it since the 1950s was that the? Uh, if it was in the roadside report, I think I based it off 1990 or 1995. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was way more recent than that. That's right. That's what made it so depressing. Uh, it was since that time frame, a band ten miles wide from Davenport to Council Bluffs. So anyone listening in who's not from Iowa. Basically, you're talking, you know, Iowa is one of those states that lies in between the two major rivers, the Mississippi River and the Missouri River. And so that's basically from the Mississippi River to the Missouri River, you know, the whole width of the state. And although, you know, people joke and say that that Iowa is nothing but corn, we're a pretty big state. It it takes you about five, maybe five and a half hours to make that drive. Um, from from Davenport to Council Bluffs and um, ten miles wide, I mean that is that is a staggering amount of habitat lost. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's why I say, I'm, <laughs> you know, I, we probably can't get back to the bird numbers we had in 1990, 1995, even if we do have good weather, because we we just don't have places for the birds to live anymore. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that is. I mean, it's 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 sad to <laughs> to really put all that together and think it through. But but yeah, unfortunately, that's that's the case. But, but we can kind of come back to that here before the end. I kind of want to ask you know your opinion on some things for moving forward and what we see down the road. But before we do that, let's dig into this 2020 roadside survey result and. Um, you know, as as fun as it is to talk about jackrabbits and buffalo, those are not game species mm-hmm. here in the in the Midwest. But <laughs> but but pheasants, quail, cottontail, and gray partridge certainly are. And mm-hmm. um, overall, I thought the the survey results sounded pretty good for this year. Would you agree with that, Todd? Oh yeah, definitely. Yep, we had a mild winter and probably our driest. Our driest spring, oh, I think I looked at the numbers. I can't remember off the top of my head, but maybe since 2001. So driest spring in a long time. So, yeah, I think just knowing what we know about weather and what populations do, I think a lot of folks were excited, you know, coming into the survey. And uh, it, 
I would have been happier if it had been bigger, but uh, we were in a major drought in the western two-thirds of the state, and the survey is kind of predicated on good dues, and sure. it's kind of yeah. hard to get a good due when it's in a drought. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Yeah, so let's uh, let's go ahead and kind of go by this uh, species by species here. Um, one thing I've... You know, some, I guess I shouldn't assume that people understand this, but, but, uh, this might be a bubble bursting moment for, <laughs> for you as a listener <laughs> who, mm-hmm. who was ever tuning in. Um, pheasants are not native to Iowa. <laughs> they were, they were dropped off here and, um, there's, there's different, different, uh, bits to that story, different, different, uh, components to that. But, um, they, they were not treated like your normal non-native or maybe the uglier term that we hear all the time, especially in headlines, right? Because we like to, we like to freak people out with uh, ecological news from time to time. We use, we use terms like a uh, zombie deer disease, you know, we're talking about chronic wasting disease or something, but uh, the, uh, the term that, that's not so nice for non-native species is invasive species and we don't really use that term when we talk about pheasants of course because you know we love pheasants but um pheasants have done very well holding on here not just in iowa but throughout the midwest i I believe they're in asian species aren't they todd yeah, they have a fairly wide distribution, but yeah, they're kind of found in the arid steppe region from China all the way over actually to Iran and all okay. the way over to the Mediterranean almost, native and wow. uh, some different subspecies. Um, but the Chinese ringneck was the subspecies that was brought to this country and successfully established in uh, the Willamette Valley of Oregon. Oh, I want to say in about the 1870s. So they actually captured wild birds over there and brought them over. And uh, they did amazingly well. And uh, and then they just kind of spread across the country. And so where the habitat's suitable, they, they became very well established. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. So my question here has been since I, and that was definitely a bubble bursting moment for me years ago when I learned that, you know, I was like, what? (laughs) Not native. Uh, but, but, um, a question since, you know, I, I started studying in, in in biology and, and so forth in college when I learned that about pheasants and then I learned, you know, quail are a native species, but, according to the the survey results and just for my own anecdotal evidence or my own observations in the field, I come across quite a few more pheasants than I do quail. I mean, I'll see a, I'll see a covey or two every year that I'm out hunting. Um, it seems like, but pheasants, pheasant numbers seem to be doing better than quail. And I know they aren't occupying the exact same niche, but they, it makes me wonder why is that? Why? How come? How come we see more pheasants and, and our roadside counts are a little bit higher for pheasants than they are for for quail? Is it just because the quail are harder to see because they're so much smaller, or 
are pheasants truly doing that much better than quail here in Iowa? Hey, first geners, I hope you're enjoying this super educational chat with biologist Todd Bogenschutz of the Iowa DNR. I'm getting real fired up for pheasant and hopefully maybe even a little quail hunting this year. So I figured that today's tip of the day, to be topic relevant, we should uh, talk a little strategy for pheasant hunting. I just wrote an article for a magazine and in that article I had to talk about some strategy for how to hunt pheasants. A lot of times we just like to show up at the the gate to the field and uh, just kind of roll it out with the dogs and uh, just kind of blindly wander and hope we might accidentally kick up a few roosters. Well, there's a whole lot more to it than that if you really want to have a chance at reaching your limit, especially in a state like Iowa, which yes, we have quite a few birds, but as uh, we're hearing here in the interview, um, not as many as they were once were. So we got to really prioritize where we're hunting. There's a whole lot that goes into figuring that out. But one thing that I think many pheasant hunters need to really think through is matching their hunting party to the size of the hunting property. What do I mean by that? Well, a lot of times fields around here, if you're knocking on doors, asking for permission, you're not gonna really come across any real huge vast CRP patches. A lot of the CRP or the, the good pheasant habitat I should say are going to be fairly narrow strips along creek banks, um, maybe a little feathered zone along the edge of a stand of timber or waterway in a field. And when you have that narrow of ground you're probably going to want to limit your party to maybe one or two extra hunting buddies and, and just one or two dogs. If you get too many, it can get kind of crowded and crowded hunting is, in my opinion, unsafe hunting for one. And two, you're going to be making a lot of noise and those birds are going to probably stay well ahead of you and flush early and, and things like that. So you want to make sure that you don't have too many people. But on the other side of that, if you do find yourselves lucky enough to come across a big wide open field of tall grassy cover for these pheasants you want to make sure you have enough hunting buddies if you have too vast of an area and not enough guns not enough dogs those pheasants will be running around you all day so make sure you come up with a good strategy have, have everyone in a safe position enough to cover the field and go after those roosters all right well that's your tip for today Let's get back to our conversation with Mr. Todd Bogenschutz of the Iowa DNR talking about upland game species here, not just in Iowa, but all across the Midwest. Um, I think, you know, if you look at densities, yeah, I think pheasants densities are just higher than quail. And, uh, I mean, for quail, Iowa's kind of at the northern fringe of the range. Sure. Um, you know, if you yeah. look at historical settlement, when settlers first got here, they were kind of just found in south central and southeast. Okay. Um, but then with settlement, um, you know, settlers weren't rich people. They couldn't afford barbed wire, so they planted Osage orange hedgerows to when the state was first settled in the 1800s, 1850s, I mean, tens of thousands of miles, all the way up to the Minnesota border. Yeah. And if you read uh, 
Although Leopold's book about it, um, quail expanded all the way up into Minnesota just because of that perfect shrubby habitat next really? to wheat huh. fields. Yeah, I mean, they, and they're not thought of it. You know, quail just can't take a lot of snow and cold. So it's sure. impressive they get that far. But, you know, like I said, things got more efficient and those things were all bulldozed out and replaced with barbed wire. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. So, you know, quail today are mostly found in the southern third of the state. And, um, yeah, I mean, so if we get any kind of sub-zero winter, winter weather temperatures and a lot of snow, yeah. it's pretty hard on quail here. But um, mm-hmm. quail are much more, um, they don't use a bigger area. They, they have smaller home ranges than pheasants. And so yeah. that means all yeah. the habitat components need to be closer. And so for quail... They like agriculture. I mean, they we tend to get our best numbers when there is some type of agriculture around. Sure. But they really need that shrubby component through the winter. Yeah. Um, not not deer timber, not turkey timber, but shrubby cover, raspberry thickets and dogwoods and you know, kind of that lower shrub cover. And they mm-hmm. really need kind of a a weedy component. They like a lot of bare ground. So when we first settled the state and didn't have a lot of chemicals, fields were really weedy. Boy, that was perfect quail habitat. Mm. But, you know, now they're all clean because they're sprayed with Roundup. So, right. So for quail, you know, a covey of quail can persist on 40 acres if all the habitat components are there. But with today's agriculture and big equipment and you know, they want to farm quarter sections, not 40s. So you bulldoze right. out all those fence lines and draws. And so, yeah, quail, quail are struggling um, just as much as pheasants. They're in a long-term decline, just like pheasants are. But um, pheasants are, you know, they have a bigger home range, so they can cover more area if all things aren't close. And obviously they're a bigger bird, so they can handle uh, deeper snows and, and uh, colder winters. Yeah, and uh, they're more of a generalist. You know, they need a grassy component, and uh, you know, cropland interspersed. And you know, if you get those two things, they can they can make a go of it. Huh. That is that is really interesting. It's good Spe- info. <laughs> yeah, especially with the hedgerow part of that. Wow, that is I've never heard that, but that that is really interesting. And you know, th- that's what makes it so interesting talking with talking with my grandfather growing up, you know, a guy who's been on, been on the land that he's on for 83 years, they used to use a lot of hedgerow uh, or a lot of a uh, hedge for fence posts, like you said. And, you know, they had a lot more of those, those groves of trees around on the farm that just aren't there anymore. And, and, um, yeah, it, it just, it's really interesting then to hear your, your, uh, side of the information there just kind of puts the whole picture together that's that's really interesting you know one other thing here that i i've often wondered about too is what about prairie chickens do have pheasants have pheasants kind of uh pushed them out of their their uh niche here in the, the iowa ecosystem or was it just truly hunting was so hard on the prairie chicken when when iowa was settled that that um you know, they were just knocked back or knocked down so low. And then because it's not a priority game species, 
just hasn't there hasn't been the the funding or the efforts in place to really try and get them going again in Iowa or is it kind of like the jackrabbit where they the landscape has changed so much that trying to even bring them back is is an exercise in futility what what's kind of the picture there with the prairie chicken um well like you said it you know I, I think early on you know go back to the 1830s 1850s I mean at settlement actually you know, much like jackrabbits, I think it actually created ideal conditions for, for prairie chickens. And prairie chickens were a major staple of a lot of our early settlers. I mean, they were yeah. Iowa's number one game bird and black mm-hmm. in the skies. And But as we slowly kind of converted that native prairie and, and got into more corn and soybeans and Prairie chickens really need those big blocks of grassland, and so it was really the habitat side of it that kind of eliminated our prairie chickens. They were overhunted, but uh, we did start implementing uh, serious hunting restrictions on prairie chickens by the 1870s, like people had seen, you know, that things have changed, and then closed the season completely right after the turn of the century, but it didn't matter because it really wasn't the hunting side of it. It was sure. just the change, changing landscape. And so, yeah, you know, the early settlers, you know, prairie chickens were kind of a major staple. And so when they went away and, you know, pheasants were shown to be able to live, to survive and do well in Iowa's agricultural landscape that we were kind of going toward. I mean, I think that's why pheasants took took off so widely across the country because they could do well with some more intensive agriculture, whereas prairie chickens couldn't. Yeah. That is a question I have had for probably 10 years and you just answered it. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> that is, that, that, that makes total sense. Once again, that's yeah, for sure. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about these other species on the, the report. Rabbit hunting is something that's done I don't know, all, all the lower 48, I would imagine, and pro- probably even in many places in, in up in Canada. We have, from the report, it sounded like a, a really healthy rabbit population, cottontail rabbit population here in Iowa. Um, no statistically significant change, I think I read, um, from 2019 to 2020. The, the one thing I was wondering about with them kind of been hearing it creep up in the news here lately and again probably falls under the zombie deer uh news headline category here and and, and i'm wondering if this is something that um, biologists have been watching carefully for decades but rabbit hemorrhagic disease i noticed made headlines a few times uh, i think it was back in the spring um just about how it's threatening uh rabbit populations in various points here in north america is that is that something that we're concerned about here in Iowa? Yeah, I mean, I think we would be so far. We don't think it's made it to this part of the country yet. Most of the stuff I saw this spring was Arizona, New Mexico, California, Nevada, and mainly with the jackrabbits down there, black-tailed jackrabbits. Um, okay. Seems like it's a bigger issue with the rabbit trade. So those people with pet rabbits are raising rabbits. Um more so than in the wild, but we we have documented it in the wild. So I've not heard much related to cottontails yet. So I guess time will tell. 
that's uh <laughs> i guess that's kind of encouraging then to hear uh so yeah hopefully hopefully uh we we stay healthy in that regard but brandon you've kind of yeah you've kind of noticed a decline in rabbits or heard reports of it in delaware right yeah i mean out here in delaware we never you know growing up we we never really had a uh, a quail population a pheasant population my dad when he was growing up i mean there was quail thick i mean you know he went quail hunting all the time and and did quite well um, but rabbit hunting, uh, you know, was blessed to enjoy rabbit hunting growing up. And you know, speaking of hedgerows, you know, just talking about a hedgerow, you know, and, and, and the fencing and, and that type of, of good stuff. I mean, we, you know, grew up and had hedgerows behind me, you know, in the fields behind us. And, and we used hedgerows very successfully for rabbit hunting. Um, and unfortunately, over the years, we, the, the fox population has really blown up here in Delaware and it's dramatically affected the cottontail population and it's it's very difficult to have any any reasonable measure of success i mean unless you're unless you're targeting a specific area that with dogs i mean if you don't have dogs it's it's you're good luck you know it's going to be super super challenging um and so i think that's for us been mostly attributable to the to the rise of the fox population and now we're starting to get some coyotes as well on, on top of that out here so i would love to see it rebound uh, you know loved growing up going rabbit hunting i mean that was uh, you know rabbit was my first actually my first game animal that i ever shot uh and kind of led to me really falling in love with with hunting in general so i would love to see it you know blow back up and you see the young hunters get out there and enjoy that and the seasoned hunters, you know, relive some of those great memories. So, I mean, hopefully something can happen in the future with that, but it very interesting nonetheless. Hmm. That's, that is interesting. Have, has, has there been any concern about over predation here in, in Iowa, Todd? I, I can't imagine that being the case, but has you hear hunters talk about it, of course, a lot, but, but, um, you know, a lot of times the the data from researchers such as your, yourself, when that when that starts to be brought up here in Iowa, it just isn't consistent with the the data around here. Is that is that ever going to be a concern? Do you think here? Um, yeah. So we do a bow hunter survey, and uh, we ask our bow hunters to report trends on most of our predators: fox, raccoon, coyote, skunk, possum, pretty much the whole suite of them, and. And they mm-hmm. show kind of a, most of them show a fairly stable trend. Some are declining, like uh, red fox are declining, gray fox are declining. Some are showing a slight upward trend. Seems like coyotes are stable to slightly upward. Um, possums seem to be slightly upward. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it basically, if you've got good habitat, most of the critters are pretty good at avoiding predators. Mm-hmm. Like his yeah. other nature yeah. can kind of tip the table, um, you know, on a bad winter and concentrate rabbits or pheasants. And obviously predators can be more efficient, but you know, when you have a mild winter, it works just the opposite, you know, they're actually very inefficient and that, you know, that's why population goes up because, you know, we have better survival than average. And so we got more, more critters out there making babies the next spring. So yeah. So yeah, usually what I say with predators is it's a question I get a lot. Um, but I said, you know, if you if you got good habitat, they're they're pretty adept at avoiding them. I mean, yeah. I'm not gonna lie to you. There isn't too much wildlife that dies of old age. Usually they die because something eats them. Yeah. So I mean, but, yeah. 
Right. You know, they're very prolific. Um, you know, our pheasant, rabbit, quail, uh, you know, they'll produce 10 young per pair a year. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, that, um, it's kind of how they operate, you know, they're kind of like, I guess, panfish in a way, you know, you pump out a lot of babies and hope some make it to the next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. There's a, there's an old, uh, ecology term for, for that, but we better not go too deep in the weeds here. That's right. That's right. Those <laughs> old R strategists. Oh man. Yeah. So before we uh, wrap up this conversation here with the, the roadside survey, I, I see it you know, like in comments on social media or something when, when these roadside surveys get released every year. And I think that this comes from people just not understanding what all goes into the roadside survey. And you kind of gave us a little glimpse of that a while ago when you were talking about how this goes back. This is something that's been going on since the sixties. But people say, Oh, that's, you know, they're only checking this many routes. That's only what they see. It's, it's just, there's, there's no, there's no reliable data here from from the roadside survey. And I know that's not the truth. And obviously, that's a big part of your job. And you know that's not the truth. So how can you maybe, in a you know short way, convince people that this is a, an effective way to uh, sample uh, these different species and I, I would assume most people that say this stuff are are hunters so so we'll say we'll focus on pheasants and uh, quail here how, how come uh you guys have determined the roadside surveys to be an, an effective means for gathering this population data well, I think, you know, a lot of science and data went into, you know, kind of perfecting the survey. Like I said, it started in the 1930s and some research at Iowa State in the 1950s is what really kind of honed in, you know, how we do the survey now. But, you know, we we obviously can't count every pheasant that's out there. They're just yeah. too good at hiding and it's just too big an area. So. You know, anytime when you're doing that, you have to resort to statistics and surveys and, and kind of go to indices. And that's really what the roadside survey is. So we have 215 routes statewide. They're each 30 miles long. We have two in every county. And so that equates to 6,000 miles that we drive. Wow. So it's a pretty large sample. Yeah. Yeah. So these routes are basically the same routes every year unless something causes us to change them like a road gets paved or something like that sure. but generally mm-hmm. the same routes and they're driven by a lot of the same staff every year and uh under the same conditions at the same time of the year and so that really gives you a good index to compare yeah. what how's what did when we saw this year how's it compared to last year yeah and you know, I would say that if folks don't believe it, um, the survey works so well that I can tell you what our pheasant harvest is going to be pretty accurately, and the season hasn't even opened yet. That's... So if the survey doesn't work, then fifty to 100,000 pheasant hunters must be lying to me about what they harvest because right. 
Right. <laughs> the two yeah. defense match up pretty well. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's yeah, a well, great that's a point. Yeah. Well that, said. Yeah, yeah. That is that is an excellent point. Yep. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna hang on to that one. But I try not to. I try not to roll. My my dad. My dad always says, "Don't ever, don't ever roll with the pigs. You always get dirty." But man, mm-hmm. knowing knowing that little bit of uh, information there, that'd be a great, a great little uh, comeback to throw out there. But yeah, that's right. that's a uh, that's that's a great point. So, uh, is there any way that if if any uh, Iowans are listening into this, and I suppose other states do a, do a similar method? If somebody wanted to participate in the roadside surveys, is that something you guys seek the general populace? Do you guys seek the help from them to cover those 6,000 miles, or are you guys able to accomplish that through all your summer help and and uh, other techs and biologists on staff? Yeah, it's pretty much all hands on deck when, when we do it. So all of our wildlife management techs, bios, have routes, and then our Law enforcement officers have routes too, so generally we don't uh, don't ask for any general public help. But sure. you know that's you know our staff get asked to you know can I ride along with you and and we're like sure just don't <laughs> interrupt us while <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know we have reporters and stuff that are you know I've taken numerous reporters in my career that you know want to see the survey and sure, see yeah. how it's done and so. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, and it's it's nice to to hear what all goes into that. That's that's no doubt a, a an excellent way to do it. And you know, the thing I always thought of when people would complain about it, it's like, well, how else do you want them to access all this private land? Because if I'm going to guess that if these people complaining, if they were a private landowner, they probably wouldn't be too happy about uh um state government workers as you said earlier in the conversation uh just walking out into their uh, crp field and kicking up pheasants so yeah uh, right <laughs> so i i think it's it's absolutely the thing that makes sense and like you said the the proof is in the pudding there as you uh um uh look at how uh you can you can make those predictions those accurate predictions of yeah. it so well, kind of taking this as we draw to a close here, one one major point I want to cover before uh, I ask your kind of your opinion on where you see things going in the future, and maybe even get a little bit of your advice as to how we as as sportsmen and and even just just anyone who's listening in that enjoys wildlife and nature, how we can, we can make things better. But before I want to get to that point, um, let's say a hunter is listening in who has the ability to manage some ground. Um, we'll say it's like your, your fairly typical Iowa farm ground where, you know, the vast majority of the acres are tilled and in row crops, uh, corn and, and soybeans and the rest is uh you know your typical crp patches along creek banks and waterways and then maybe even a you know a few small stands of timber um how how would you suggest to a person in that situation how could they make their property better for supporting pheasants and quail 
Well, you know, that's what our private lands biologists uh, that we have on staff do. They meet with landowners and kind of make those recommendations. But so basically what I do with our private land staff is, you know, tell them what the research says and sure. how, how we can best manage. So one of the first things we ask folks is what, what's your priority? Is it pheasants? Is it quail? Is it deer? Or is it turkey? You know, because, mm-hmm. you know, depending on that answer, you know, that's going to give you you know, give us information yeah. to give you the right answer. So right. Right. I'm going to, let's say we're talking about pheasants here. So yeah, pheasants kind of like open landscapes. Um, they like agriculture. They like wetlands. Um, they're not big fans of timber. Not saying that you won't see pheasants in woody cover, but just think about where pheasants are at their highest densities in this country. It's South Dakota, North right. Dakota. Nebraska, Iowa, and it's kind of in the very open part mm-hmm. of the state. So, right, yeah, really, they really like wetland cover. They like grassland cover. They like it interspersed with agriculture. And so, for pheasants, you know, my general recommendation to landowners is: well, you want the bedroom, the living room, and the kitchen all on your property. Yeah, so, what's okay. the bedroom? That's going to be like cattail winter cover, switchgrass, maybe a couple rows of conifers. You know, to me, that's the bedroom. Um, the The kitchen would be like your food plot, um, you know, thinking about the wintertime, but also kind of your nesting cover. And that's what I call the living room. You know, all that grassy cover, that's where the hens are going to nest. That's where they're going to raise their young. That's where all the bugs are going to be. So if you have all three of those components on your property, and so pheasants have everything they need. They got their winter cover, yeah. their nesting cover, their brood rearing cover. As long as you manage it well, you should have pretty good fed. Now, Mother Nature's going to throw us the curtain, you know, the bad winter, the bad spring, and, right. you know, then the good ones. You know, you're going to ebb and flow with that, but you should always have some birds if you have uh, those three components there. Yeah, that's that's great advice. That's that's that makes a lot of sense. Once again, um, you know, recently I, I mentioned I had that DNR Forester and then also uh, NRCS agent come out to to um, that farm that I hunt, and uh, the NRCS guy suggested for more late season wildlife cover, which is kind of the problem on that farm is is um, I think the trees, there needs to be some TSI work done on the uh, timber stand improvement work, I should say, done on the farm and, uh, you know, kind of promote some more of that ground level, understory, thicker stuff. Um, But he suggested, well, what about doing cover crops? And at first that seems to make a lot of sense. And I have a friend who's also a teacher, but he, he farms as well with his dad and they do cover crops in the winter and he said uh, so i was asking his opinion on it he's a thoughtful guy you know he likes to hunt and he he you know he observes how wildlife uh you know how they're doing and stuff on his farm and so i asked him about it and he said you know i kind of view it as like a big tease to the to the wildlife because they get used to having all this great cover crop to nest in and to fawn in and to um, you know, basically have a lot of this security and thermal cover. But then when we start tilling in the spring, right when they're all nesting and, and brooding and uh, 
dropping fawns were basically just <laughs> turning the world upside down on him. He says he sees critters running left and right while he's going through the field. What, do you have any any uh, opinion on cover crops and supporting wildlife on a property? Does it help? Does it make it worse? Um, does it take away maybe that really important late season carb, you know, high energy resource of the the leftover kernels of corn left from the harvest? Does it kind of ruin that for the wildlife? What What's your opinion on someone putting cover crops on to help wildlife? Uh, it's funny you should ask that, Ken, because um, we've actually got a student at Iowa State under Dr. Adam Janke, uh, Taylor Shirley. She was actually one of my summer kids uh, not too long ago, um, is doing a project to just investigate that down in Washington County huh. for both and quail. It's interesting. Um, so, yeah, I'm, you know, I think me and Adam are both really interested to see what our results are because it's cover crops yeah. are new. So there's not a lot right. of other research data out there on it. Um, I just did see some research um, last week out of Kansas doing some cover crops. And so she uh, not much nesting in them, I think, just okay. because of down there they're planted in the spring and then terminated, you know, about may or so so yeah they just don't so here in iowa they do some fall seedings and so they were thinking maybe there'd be enough there come spring that they would nest in it but i don't i don't think um that's what taylor's finding um yeah okay they did they did see some brood use of them in kansas so it'll be interesting to see what what she sees with her data so yeah we're trying to investigate that you know just knowing what i know about cover crops and how they grow them here you know typically they're fall seeded and you know it's a winter rye or winter wheat so they'll grow you know a couple inches high before winter and then they live through the winter and then they start growing in the spring but then they have to terminate them right when they plant which is april and may which like you said well that's right at peak of nesting season Mm -hmm. that's about the first time so Yeah, I mean, so, you know, they spray them and it dies. And so there is some residual cover there. So they may be able to come back and re-nest in that. Um, and, you know, there probably would be some bugs in it. But mm-hmm. I guess right now I'm not seeing a huge advantage, um, I think, for things like deer and turkey to go out and forage on in the winter. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's being used. And I think in the springtime, if we've got migrating waterfowl like geese and, you know, that green forage, I think they would use it. Um, but I guess my gut feeling here in Iowa is, you know, what we're really lacking is that undisturbed grassland habitat. And that's, what's really impacting our pheasant quail and rabbits. And I don't think they're just not there long enough. So it's not really what's missing. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, definitely. One other thing that that this uh, friend and I, we, we kind of joke with each other about is, you know, one of us will be on our way into work and we'll notice uh, where there was some of that tall grass cover the afternoon before on the way home from work. That morning on our way into work, 
you know, it'll be like uh, late August, early September, and uh, all that grass has been mowed. You know, the waterways have been mowed or the ditches have been mowed. Mm -hmm. Is that bad for, we'll say, we'll just use the example of pheasants again, or is it just bad for pheasant hunters? Like we said before, you know, it's not like, oh, the habitat's gone now. Instantly all these pheasants are dead. You know, obviously that's right. not, not happening, but it should should we if we if we know a farmer and we hunt on their ground or something like that, should we encourage them to leave that grass up not only for better hunting, but because it's it's you know like we talked about earlier, it helps keep the pheasants spread out better through the season, or do you think that 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 practice of mowing waterways and and um, ditches and CRP strips at yep. the end of the growing season. That's not such a big deal. Um, I think it really depends on what else is around there. I think, you know, um, I grew up on a farm and worked on a farm when I was younger. And, you know, I respect our farmers a lot. You know, they feed the world right. and they got to make a living. So, but I think I would just talk to them about, you know, why are you doing it? And, you know, a lot of times they don't think about the wildlife side of it. So just mention to that, it, it may not change things, but maybe if they have a little bit more information, they might think about, well, maybe I just mowed it because it's cosmetic and, you know, it looked better to me. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if that was the only winter cover on the farm, that right. You now if the neighbor's got a big CRP field across the road, probably not a big deal. So, right. you know, it yeah. does depend, you know, we go talk to landowners. It's, that's why we can't have like a cookie cutter wildlife plan because every farm's different. All landscapes yeah. are different. And, you know, if, if you're by yourself, we'd probably make one recommendation. If your neighbor's got great habitat too, well, that's going to kind of impact kind of what we say for you too. So really does depend on your kind of landscape context of, but generally, yeah, we'd we'd rather not see cover mode in in the fall. But um, understand, it's it's got to happen sometimes too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I I kind of think um, farmers will do it just because they have so much equipment in and out of the field during harvest time. You know, it's just easier to to um, get yep. around and and so forth. So I definitely definitely can sympathize on that. And like you said, they're feeding the world. They <laughs> we. We owe them all the respect, and and um, if if they feel that's the right thing for their ground, then you know it yeah. might might not might not jive so well with our hunting plans, but but uh, yeah, it, it, that's, yeah, that's I saw call. a track that I drove by actually tonight that's CRP, and it's a it's a wetland program, and so he's got nice natives on it, but then where the wetland used to be, it kind of grows into giant ragweed that's over your head you know it's like a three or four acre patch and i really love it because yeah. we get a bad winter guess where all the pheasants go yep right there well i drove by it tonight and i suppose because it's not grass like it's supposed to be he's got it all mowed down and i'm like oh that's the best <laughs> Yeah, there, there it goes <laughs> and it's like oh look at that weed patch that's terrible you know, yep. so I, I, what I need mm -hmm. to do is like, you know, <laughs> I know it looks ugly, <laughs> for the peasants, that's actually pretty good stuff in January. Yeah. Right. 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 I guess one more reason to get people into hunting, right. Is then they start thinking about it from that, from that standpoint yes. too. So that's a, 
Yeah, I, <laughs> whenever I see that, I, I feel that same uh, bit, of, bit of pain as well. Um, w one final thing here, and we can kind of mix these two together. So I guess I'll ask them of you at the same time. Where do you see the future of, again, we'll go with these upland small game, you know, upland bird species throughout America. Where do, where do you see these species, how do you see their populations doing going forward based on how we're treating the landscape now? So taking into consideration um, everything state agencies like yourself and even some private agencies like pheasants forever and, and nwtf and all that and you know the habitat projects that those organizations sponsor and and put biologists on the case to make sure that things are be, being done right taking all that into consideration but then also taking into consideration the the urban creep right so more urbanization um uh, more tilling going on and um, less pasture um, the the ever increasing monocultures of of you know very specific crops so taking all that into consideration where do you where do you see things going do you think it'll it'll more or less stay the same as it is now do you think it'll degrade eventually to where it's, you know, we start, no you know, things like the jackrabbit are totally gone and quail are absent from Iowa and, you know, pheasants just never really get back to a point where, yeah, I want to go to Iowa so I can hunt pheasants or, or do you think there'll be like this turnaround moment where people become more aware and they want to, they want to start planting some of those small grains again, and they want to have uh, more grassy pasture. What, what do you kind of see happening in, in that long run? And then the final part of that, if you had a magic wand or you had some magic words that you could, you could say that would make exactly what you would love to see happen for for uh, we'll just again go with pheasants here. What would you, what what changes would you want to see everybody get on board with? Yeah. Wow. All right. Um, well, I guess you know, looking at the the short term here and what's coming in the future, um, you know, CRP is hugely important for our upland game populations. So. You know, if you love upland game, um, clean drinking water, I think, you know, definitely share that with your elected officials. There's a lot of bullseyes put on CRP, I think, but, um, you know, it's really what's keeping our bird numbers and our upland game in the state at the levels they're at right now. So um, the program's supposed to be growing at the moment, but they've made some changes to it where it doesn't pay very well. And so it's actually shrinking, even though the authorization is to increase it. So like to see some changes there because um, yeah. our landowners will do the right thing. I think when it comes to buffering streams and, yeah. but you got a fair rate and I don't blame them for that. Right. So, um, you know, CRP is one thing, um, but you know, 
if we go back to the 1990s, you know, when CRP was at its peak, we still had some hay land and some other small grains around, um, you know, we were shooting a million roosters. Um, you yeah. know, last year and the year before, we're in the quarter million to 300,000. You know, this year, I think we'll be back up around wow. 300,000, maybe even 400,000. Wow. But, you know, that's still only not way to a million. Right. So can we get back yeah. there? I don't think so because, you know, right now I estimate well, the hay, small grains, CRP in the state, we're at about 3 million acres of habitat statewide. Well, back in the 1990s, we were at five and six million. So, you know, we've, we've got to get back to that amount of habitat in the state, probably to get back to a million bird harvest. Mm-hmm. Did that happen? Um, you know, if ag policy changes um, with CRP or something and we get a bunch more acres, we could start going that direction. Um, there's a lot of talk about biofuels and you hear yeah. about corn ethanol a lot, but there's... Yep. Corn's an annual plant, and it has a lot of energy inputs. So if you really want to talk good bioenergy, you almost need to think about a perennial, something mm-hmm. that you don't have to plant every year. Yeah. And all the chemicals and stuff that go with it and all the gas you need planting it and harvesting it. And so you start talking about grasses. So switchgrass is one of the grasses that they really you know, promote as a good biofuel that could be used to make ethanol um, just because it's you know a tall grass it grows well here it's got high yields miscanthus there's a few others um, but it seems like corn ethanol dominates right now but you know the country is you know we know we're going to run out of oil at some point so i yeah. guess in my crystal ball you know what would change in agriculture that would get us more grassy type crops out there like we used to have we used right. to have the hay well now i'm thinking maybe biofuels if we ever get to you know something that's based off grass um right you know could be could be a you know change or if you know for some reason there's some other crop that gets developed that's kind of grassy in nature that the birds could use i'm not sure what that would be right now but um that's kind of i guess my crystal ball and and what was the last question? Yeah, so, so, um, I mean, you're you're kind of you're kind of answering it right now, I think. <laughs> but um, if you if you could just do like, like, um, you know, we'll say wave the magic wand and make you know make a change happen that you think would would ultimately set everything going back in the right direction and and i'm kind of gathering that it's kind of what you're saying now with you know some of this research into these alternative uh, biofuels and getting more crp allotments and uh or allowance i guess i should say and um uh, basically having it make sense to return to just a landscape that has better habitat and and um obviously that's going to have to make sense in the pocketbooks of of americans if i if i understand you right um for that to happen is, is does that sound right 
Yep, I think we've got to have good policy. You know, I you know surveys and stuff I've seen is you know obviously everybody wants clean drinking water and and uh, pollutant free drinking water, and so <clears throat> you know any of our tax dollars that go into programs like CRP and filter strips, cover crops is another one. You know, it's getting it trying to keep nutrients on the ground and out of our waterways. I think you know that's really good use of of taxpayer dollars. So. I guess one other thing I could throw in there is, you know, so the cover crop people have come to me and, you know, said, well, this is really good for pheasants and quail. And I'm like, well, I'm not convinced because, you know, for the reasons I've already stated, I right. don't really think it's there long enough. But what I have told those folks is, is said, if we did cover crops on every acre in Iowa, um, that's a lot of seed. Somebody's got to grow it. And that's got to be grown probably in a bigger field. So if those if those cover crops were grown here in Iowa, yeah. I'm not saying Dakota and brought here, I said, then you'd be getting back to what we saw in the 1930s and 40s. Here's this small yeah. grain planted in the spring. It's not harvested till July or August. Yeah, you know, then then we're creating undisturbed habitat that maybe the birds could use, um, but you know, to for that to really have an impact on the bird statewide, that means every acre in Iowa would have to be cover crops. So, you know, to create that kind of demand. So, right. you know, but it, it's, you know, something else that could be feasible. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of looking at the other side of the coin there. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even considered that. That's, that's a great point. Well, Todd, um, Thank you so much for coming on. This was very educational. <laughs> I think you would yeah. probably agree, right, Brandon? Yeah, I mean, especially for someone like me. I mean, just listening to, you know, because a lot of this, you know, I, I don't have a lot of experience in, you know, when you're talking about a lot of this stuff, just being out here in Delaware. So, I mean, it's very interesting and kind of cool stuff. So, thank you so much. Yeah, I know they're doing some good stuff in uh, Delaware on quail. They're part of a national quail plan and they're showing some pretty good results and I think New Jersey's trying to, I know you guys, have, your quail numbers are, you know, in long-term decline, just like the rest of the country. But, um, yeah, used to be a lot of specialty crops. I'm told growing there along the coast and yeah, there. And, uh, I think there's yeah. like large cranberry grower. They've actually brought wild quail up from Georgia and established yeah. there maintaining them but they they have to be pretty active in their management of the pine savanna but uh yeah we've got to go go ahead go i'm sorry no that's basically and just wanted to pass that along that uh yeah i appreciate it's not lost out there either but got to make the right habitat for them yeah yeah i appreciate that i know they they uh, there was a big push back in the 90s um, it, back in the mid nineties, uh, used to be when I was growing up and, and hunting, you know, you'd never see a wild Turkey around in Delaware. And so in the mid nineties, they did a, a big release at one of the local wildlife refuges, prime hook wildlife refuge. And it, it's taken off and Turkey hunting is, is great in the state of Delaware now. And at the same time, they actually tried a, you know, something similar with the pheasant side of things. And it, it just didn't take. And I know they've you know, they've tried other things over the years. And I, I, I mean, that's that's great news because I, I honestly wasn't aware 
um, that there was, you know, recent big push on the on the uh, quail side of things. So I'm going to research that more myself. But I know that they've tried growing particular things in some of the some of the wildlife refuges. Um, there's another really large one in central Delaware called Bombay Hook and really large. And I know they've tried to plant some particular things up there. So I appreciate the information because I want to research it more now myself to see what else I can find out because I would love to support that and, and get in on that where I can. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, quail are just, they take a lot of management just to, if you got time, not to delve too far into it. But, yeah. you know, as so I said, you know, you can, a covey of quail, let's just say it's 10, 12 mm-hmm. birds on 40 acres. So that's mm-hmm. one bird every four acres. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, that's, it's very easily done to have a covey per 40. But the yeah. research out here in Iowa and, and Missouri has shown that in the wintertime, a covey is never more than 70 to 90 feet from shrubby cover. Mm. So if you think about that, if you, if you want the quail to be able to use that 40 acres anywhere on it in the winter, they're never more than 70 to 90 feet away from shrubby cover. Right. That tells you how dissected a landscape, you know, of course they want the parts and they want the ag in there and then you want that shrub component. Right, uh, that's a lot. It's intensive management for quail. Yeah, right. Well said. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Todd. I I could, uh, (laughs) as you probably gathered from all of our emailing back and forth, I could talk to you forever. There's so so many so many uh, questions I could I could ask you. And um, after we uh, close this one out here, I can tell you a a quick story. Once we uh, end the podcast here. well, I still got you on the line. It's something I saw pertain to what we talked about recently. But thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, you know what? We'd love to have you back on sometime to talk some more uh, Upland game science with you. Oh, sure. Anytime. It was a blast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we always have so much fun when we do these. So thank you yeah. very much. And thank you, Brandon, for, for joining in. Yeah, of course. So, you ready for a pop quiz yet? Wow, that was a lot of great information. It just really fueled my passion for the wild critters that call America home. It's fun just to know these things are still in the landscape, but it should also make us feel responsible for protecting their populations for generations to come. I want to give a big thank you to Todd for coming on the show tonight, and also to Brandon. Remember, please head over to Hunt Fish Life at thehuntfishlife.com you can link up with their social media pages through that and also they got some pretty sweet gear going on in their store you can check that out as well when you're done checking out hunt fish life please make sure you uh, go to your search bar on your preferred internet browser and type in www.firstgenhunter.com and you will find the same types of things there head over to my Instagram page, my Facebook page, and my Go Wild page where you can follow and like to your heart's content, share some comments on things, and love to hear what you have to say. Also, please check out the First Gen Hunter YouTube channel. 
I've just uploaded another vlog. Hopefully there will be more soon. And myself, Brandon, and a lot of these uh, familiar voices that you've heard on previous episodes are working on a special project for you to get you all fired up about the upcoming deer season for those of us who haven't opened yet. Well, until next time, people, keep on getting out in the field and hunting. And above all else, take care and take someone hunting. <laughs>